Um, so, as, as we've been going through, we've been going through the doctrine of the church, and uh, as we try to highlight, me and Joey have tried to have some kind of semblance of of a logic to what we've done. We've tried to lay the foundation of what the, the universal church is, what the local church is. We've tried to tell what the, the authority of the church is, which is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and given to us. Uh, that, that authority is delegated, so to speak, or entrusted to local congregations. And that authority that we have as a local congregation is always and ever to be ruled by the Word of God. Okay? Now, as we've been going through that we've been looking at the sufficiency of Scripture for a number of different things. First, for Christian liberty. Second, for worship. We consider the regulative principle of worship for local churches. Um, Last week, we tried to make... Or, last three weeks, we've tried to look at the different constituent members of local churches, right? Does anybody remember what those are? Three. Member. Elder. Deacon. Right? Uh, members, elders, and deacons, or you could narrow that down to two, is consisted of members and officers of the church, is what a local church consists of. And today we're moving into what we've pointed to, tried to point to the whole time, and that is having all of that foundation laid, hopefully being convinced of what the local church is to some degree and what it consists of. What are the duties of all of us as members of a local church? church. Um, Joey's going to start us out next week, the duties that we have to one another, but we thought it would be good to discuss today the duties that we have corporately together as a church toward our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, worship to Him. And uh, bulletin out there, if you saw one, if you got one, I want us to consider the essential nature of corporate worship coming together. And something I hadn't thought of, talking to Miss Rhea this morning, when we say corporate worship, what do we mean by that? To gather together, as opposed to individual worship. Now, a wonderful sermon that I have here to hold up before you is called Public Worship Preferred Before Private. Now, this is the man that took over for John Owen in the 1600s, and um, he lays out a very consistent and good argument. It's a well-known sermon throughout 400 years of the church that corporate worship should actually be preferred in the heart of the Christian over private worship. And while that's going to be a small part of what we talk about today, I want us to have that as a jump-off point because I think in our current culture, in America, we talked about individualism last week, being really ingrained in the American culture and psyche. We would say that individual worship is much more important, typically, than coming together even as a church to worship the Lord. If you talk to the, the common evangelical on the street, how many times have we heard things like this? Um, I remember talking to one man and asking him what church he went to, and he said, the woods is my church, right? Uh, I I go out, I'm a hunter, I like to sit in the woods, and that's where the Lord speaks to me in a personal, private way. That's my church, right? Um, There's a man that I've been trying to convince to come to church for years who professes to be a Christian, who does not gather with a local body of Christians, and he would... Every time I would talk to him on the phone, he would tell me, well, I've, I've been listening to podcasts and I've been reading my Bible, right? Because we consider, at base level, we think that private worship 
is preferred over corporate worship, right? That God has saved me individually, and my main duty and my main preferment to worship God is individually in my own heart, in my closet, whenever I feel like it. And because we prefer individual worship so much in our way of thinking, we often think that church is not a command of God, but rather it's a nice kind of thing that you can do if you have time to do it. Now, I don't know if that rings true to you or not. That rings true to my experience of how we often think in our culture. And (coughs) part of what I want to do today, very simple outline, um, is I just want to see that corporate worship is in fact commanded in the Scripture. And in fact, God uses it for our growth, our edification individually, greater than just our individual worship. Okay? So, first, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 87. (coughs) And this might seem like a strange place. This is where David Clarkson, the guy that took over for John Owen, started his sermon. And I'd never really considered this before. Hopefully it's somewhat convincing to you. But if it's not, my argument doesn't rest on this text. Notice what's said. And I want us to really think in our minds why he uses this language in verse 2. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. Notice, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Now, certainly from a a dispensational perspective, which we don't take, we could say that, well, God has a, a place for the Jewish people. But even if you take that perspective, it doesn't answer the question of what's getting getting at in this text. Certainly in the tents of Jacob, there was family and private worship taking place, right? But I would propose to you that what's being said in this text is that God loves the gates of Zion because that's where his people gather together regularly to worship. Now, the reason for that is what Zion means. What Zion means. So if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13, in the Lord's mind, Zion is not just some poetic language that he has about the geographical place of Jerusalem, but Zion in particular was that place where God had chosen that his people would come to worship. Jerusalem to state that another way, is the chosen place where God's people would come and worship before him. So, Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, chapter 12, not 13. I, forgive me. Chapter 12. We see in verses 5 and 6 specifically, notice, he tells them not to, not to go and worship any place they please, not on every mountain, not on every high tree, but in verse 5, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions that you present, and your vow offerings and your free offerings, the firstborn of your herd and your flock. So, Jerusalem, God in His wisdom chose in the Old Covenant to choose one particular city, location, and temple for God's people to focus all of their worship. And I'd propose to you that Psalm 87 and verse 2 is saying that that God loves Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Not because he, He loves the location more, but that's what takes place at Jerusalem. He loves 
corporate worship. Now, as we jump into that, what are some Old Testament ways that we can see that God loves public worship in particular? I would say that we start even before the fall in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we do not get an explicit statement that you shall come together in public worship, but I think if we consider the implication of the Sabbath day, we must arrive there. We see that in verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 2, it says, Thus the, the heavens and the earth were finished and the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from His work that He had done in creation. The word rest there is the Hebrew word for Sabbath. And if you go through all the Old Testament, and you look at that word Sabbath, whether it's talking about one day in seven, or it's talking about the feast days, Every Sabbath was a time for God's people to come together and worship Him corporately. It was what the Old Testament calls a holy convocation. That's what a Sabbath was. And one day in seven, before the fall, before Moses, and even during the time of Moses, it was a special time of worship. One day in seven to worship God in His holiness. And I don't think that when we consider the Old Testament, we have much of a problem thinking that God really delighted in God's people gathering together at the temple. That he delighted in temple worship, right? We don't read much of private worship even in the Old Testament, except for perhaps in the Psalms, right? But consider the Psalms with me. David was a man, I would propose to you, that had greater private worship than any of us in this room had, right? He had greater revelations of God in his private worship. He was called a prophet in Acts chapter 2. But how does David talk about the corporate worship of God's people? Do we think of any examples of that? Psalm 16. Yeah, let's go there. No, that's okay. (coughs) Psalm 16, we... Yes, right. Yes, and again, David. And this is a psalm quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, calling David a prophet. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my God. I have no good apart for you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then notice how it's, it's tied together with worship in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Or take their names on my lips. And the the thought there is, I will worship with the people of God um, in the way that God has prescribed. Uh, Turn to Psalm 42. Now, this psalm is a a psalm of lament, right? Uh, David is, is grieving, he's depressed, and he is, through this psalm, focusing on the hope of God to work himself out of that depression. And notice what David says about corporate worship as, he, as he's lamenting the place where he is spiritually. Notice verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Not how he would go into the woods and have nice private time with God. 
But the primary thing on David's mind is how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Right? We... Brother... Yes. Yes. Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. And as we think of just about the Psalms in general, these are, these are songs. It's a hymn book of Israel, right? It, the very existence of Psalms implies that corporate worship was very important for the Old Testament. And we'll try to jump the bridge to the new in a minute. But I want us to consider some other things that are said in the Psalms. Um, please, please do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, praise God. So we know that when the Jews were exiled, right? They didn't say, well, we don't have Jerusalem anymore, so we're just going to... And I'm not trying to be purposefully mean. I'm trying to be a little snarky. They didn't just say, well, we're all just going to go sit on our own private tree and worship God because we don't have the temple anymore. What do we know the Jews did? They created synagogues, Right? Places where they could come together and worship and gather. Even though they didn't have a place to sacrifice animals any longer, they still wanted to come together to worship God. Now, forgive me, this this is just coming to my mind. Another psalm where David, he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper where? In the house of God, right? Than dwell in the tents of wickedness. David prays as one of his chief prayers that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever, right? Right? And all of that implies corporate worship with God, not just a personal, private experience with God. Now, I think lastly, I'll I'll turn us, just for time's sake, to Psalm 22. And while Psalm 22 has much Old Testament imagery, we know that it is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, right? And what does Jesus Christ say in this psalm about corporate worship. It talks about his crucifixion. But notice, it's, it's pretty well considered that verses 1 through 21 is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, you see that, save me from the mouth of the wild oxen. And then notice, you have rescued me, right? This is Jesus Christ and his, his resurrection. God has rescued him from the, the pain and suffering that's been inflicted by evil men. Notice the first thing that he says in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Notice verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform, not privately, but before those who fear him. So... As we consider public worship, my, my proposal to you is that the institution of the Sabbath day prior to the fall, I think that that strongly suggests that corporate worship was designed for God's people before the fall happened. If you don't accept that, which 
I'm okay with. Um, I think that as we consider the Psalms, we consider the place that God had put Zion and corporate worship in the Old Covenant above private worship. I, I think that we come away at least with the idea in the Old Covenant, God greatly loved corporate worship, even above the private worship of his people. Okay? Do you have any questions about that thus far? So, when, when we consider the New Testament, we do see Christ, and that's why I bring this psalm up last, kind of acting as a bridge, that Jesus says that after his resurrection in the great congregation, among his brothers, the true church of Jesus Christ, that he is going to proclaim his name and what God has done in the midst of the congregation, right? But what do we see the early church doing? Well, I, I would say, turn with me to Acts 2.42. Please stop me anytime with questions, because I, I realize this is a very countercultural thing, and um, one of the things that I want to be aware of is that I'm not just acting counterculturally, but that we're, we're seeing what the Bible says, right? And I don't want to be mistaken. Private worship is very important to the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us in Matthew chapter 6 that we ought not to just give ourselves to outward forms of worship, but that we should even go into the prayer closet and have spiritual, true heart worship. But... That does not in any way negate the importance of corporate worship. I I just want us to notice, after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and we've gone to this text so many times, I realize. Notice in verse 42, what is said, after those souls are baptized, added to the church in Jerusalem, what characterized them? Notice, they were, and they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So, as we notice that, what, what's the, the verb that's used there for the local church? Devoted, right? The, so this means to, to entrust yourself to, to stand alongside something, right? To be committed to something. They devoted themselves to something. And again, private worship is important. I, I'm I'm saying things contrary in order to get our attention. They did not devote themselves to personal, private Bible reading. It's not what it says. What characterized the local church is that they devoted themselves to the corporate worship of God's people. Now, you might say, well, where where do you see the corporate worship here? I want us to notice that over and over throughout this, it doesn't just say to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Okay? It's... The definitive article, the, is used over and over in these texts. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And this has been taken historically in the church, and I think it's absolutely right to be referring to the elements of worship that the church was characterized by, right? They had preaching from the apostles, and they devoted themselves to be putting themselves under that preaching. The fellowship. Now... That can be taken one or two ways. Does anybody know how fellowship, the Greek word that underlies that often? Koinonia. Yes, koinonia. Now, koinonia, it can mean fellowship. It means sharing together, right? Taking part together with something. Now, that can mean taking part in a meal together. But I think that the, I know that the scripture in the New Testament often uses this word more often than not with financial matters, Right? 
to share in the Apostle Paul's ministry in Philippians chapter 4. It meant to, to give to the work of the apostles, right? To share with the, um, the saints in Jerusalem in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we would propose, and me and Joey are the conviction, that this is why we pass the plate and have a time to give of our resources during the public service. But the idea here is they devoted themselves to that. And this cannot be a private individual matter. Yes? Ooh. Amen. Amen. And that's right. We'll get to the practical application of this. First, I just want us to see the historical example of the early church, that they devoted themselves to the corporate worship of God's people. And I'll just continue. The breaking of bread, this is almost certainly referring to communion. Again, this is, it has to be corporate in nature and not private. Um, and I don't even know what it would mean apart from, from it being corporate in nature. Um, everybody's devoted to eating. And the prayers. There was corporate prayers in the church. And so I, I just want to spend a little bit of time to go through the scripture in the New Testament and show that this is commanded of us to be devoted to these things in a corporate local church. So where do we see in the New Testament that we are to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? Or we could say devoted to putting ourselves under preaching and teaching ministry. Hebrews 10.25, that's a, a great kind of classic text for the gathering of God's people, right? Um, the, the classicus locus, is, as they would say, right? In uh, Hebrews 10.25, and notice verse 24 with it. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's a very good text. Um, what specifically to do with teaching? Think of the letters. Yes. No, and, and you're absolutely right. And so let's just think, back up a little bit, and ask yourself, what is implied that we even have New Testament letters written? Okay? How did the people, Christians, in those areas, know the substance of those letters? They gathered to hear them read. Most couldn't read, right? And if you weren't in church on that Lord's Day, you, probably, you might miss 1 Corinthians being read. I mean, I can't even imagine such a thing, but, but that's certainly true. And I would tell you, just the implication that we have letters written to churches that were supposed to be read before the congregation, it implies heavily that the Apostle Paul knew nothing of a Christian saying, I'm just going to go to the woods today, and that's going to be my church. They didn't know anything of that. They didn't know anything of that. Um, what else in the letters can we think of? One of the recent letters was uh, Timothy. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's exactly right, brother. So I think one of the, the greatest, um, 
the greatest uh, commands that we see is just the implications that we have from the pastoral ministry. Now, if you'll just turn with me a couple places, notice Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4, and this is how God designed the church to disciple itself and disciple itself and build itself up, not just by gathering together and having coffee with people every once in a while and talking about the Bible, okay, which is good. But notice in verse 11, and he gave, he gifted, Christ gifted at his resurrection the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, notice, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Well, how long do we have to devote ourselves to that kind of teaching? Well, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody that's there yet, right? Um, notice in verse 14, uh, yeah, I'm just going to read it. We can come back to it later. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and by deceitful schemes. I'm going to break away from my, my outline here. Do you know Christians that aren't connected to a local church? I, I'm, I'm just going to ask, do they have very strange ideas about what Christianity is and of doctrine? That, that is no mistake. That is no mistake. Proverbs tells us that uh, a man who separates himself seeks out his own desires. Okay? And people that are not joined to a local church that do not put themselves under preaching and teaching ministry, they're going to be like waves tossed by the wind by every kind of wind of doctrine that comes about. The one that most sits most comfortably with their hearts. They're most inclined to have because they have no brothers and sisters to sharpen them. They have no pastor to guide them and direct them. Okay, it's practical implication, but I, I think it's appropriate that we consider that in this text. So next, along with this, 1 Timothy... We have qualifications of the overseer and the deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And whether we, we read through that or not, I don't think I'm going to read through that right now. I just want us to understand the implication that every church would have overseers and every Christian would have somebody overseeing their souls. It necessitates that we should be in corporate worship. And part of that is what the pastor is called to do. And the pastor is called to lead his people primarily in corporate worship, although he is to lead them in private and all those. But turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We know these texts very well, but we, we all consider them in light of what it says about the command in Scripture to be a part of church ministry. If the pastor is commanded to preach the word to his people, the people are commanded to be there. Okay? When they can, obviously. When they're able to, uh, not providentially hindered. Notice what the strong words of the Apostle Paul. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. Notice, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming. Again, we see this, this very clear implication of Scripture. When people are outside of the teaching ministry of the local church... They do, verse 3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the mist. As for you, 
always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then we... Forgive me, I skipped over a very important passage. In 1 Timothy chapter 4. Not only is Timothy called to preach the word that we see in 2 Timothy, but notice what he's to devote himself to. Verse 13. Until I come. Notice the same word, same Greek word. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Public reading of Scripture. To exhortation. To teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Notice, so that all may see your progress. Again, Paul the Apostle doesn't know anything about a church that doesn't gather together regularly. In fact, they would be able to track their pastor's progress and his sermon preparation. They were in church so often. Okay? So, do we have anything else to add with, with teaching? To devote ourselves to teaching in the New Testament. We could add many things to it, I think. Right? In Hebrews chapter 13, obey your leaders, right? Who spoke the word of God to you. So, what about back in Acts chapter 2.42? We see they devoted themselves to the teaching, the apostles' teaching... What about the fellowship, the giving of our time and money to a particular congregation of people? Where do we see that in the New Testament? It's prescribed to us. Verse 45? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing their proceeds to all as any had Need. Yes. We see it throughout Acts. We have a lot of examples in Acts. <coughs> yes, First uh, Corinthians 16. First Corinthians 16. And again, the examples we could give for the, the church giving as a corporate body are, are very, very numerous. Notice how it was part of corporate worship by the the theological phrase on the first day of the week. Verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. The Apostle Paul assumes that on the first day of every week, all the churches gather together, and they're going to set something aside as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I Come. Anything else that the church was regularly involved in the fellowship, the giving of their time and resources to the local church? Maybe for time's sake, I'll just turn you to um, 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter five. 
And we, we get this from the implication, I, I know I've used that word over and over again, but the implication of widows being taken care of in the local church and pastors being taken care of in the local church. Notice in verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. If we just pause real quick, uh, no, notice how it's assumed that the church is going to be together and that they relationally have fellowship with one another as a family even does, right? That assumes they're together an awful lot. Honor widows who are truly widows. Now, what does that mean, widows who are truly widows, in that paragraph? Miss Nancy. That's right. They're without family to help them. Right? They, they can't work. They can't earn a living. They can't be honored financially by their family. And so the church is to honor those who are truly widows by providing for their, for their needs, their necessities in the local church. And we see the same language in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And if we question what that might mean, notice verse 18... For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages, right? It's assumed that this money's coming from somewhere. And the implication for Timothy here is that he is training the local church to provide for the, for the widows and the pastors of the local congregation, right? They were devoted to this. It's a regular part of ministry. What about the breaking of bread? 1 Corinthians 11, right? Okay. I'm... I always take too much time in the earlier part of the lesson and I have to rush to the latter part. But 1 Corinthians 11, notice, turn there with me. I know we're turning all over the place. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 11. And we read every week a portion from 1 Corinthians 11, how the Apostle Paul had received from the Lord Jesus Christ, how they were to view communion. Um, but notice in verses 17 and 18, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, notice that language, come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together, notice as a church, I believe there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. Okay? The people of God came together and I think the implication here is when they came together as a church, communion was present. Um, and I think that's an argument for doing it more often than not. But notice that Paul doesn't say here, you guys are having trouble in your weekly fellowship, gathering together to have communion. Some people are getting drunk even, right? The poor don't have any food to eat when you come together. And Paul doesn't say, you guys just need to go find another congregation. Right? Or you need to do it on your own at home. He says you need to fix it. Because you're devoting yourself to breaking of bread. Can you think of any other examples? Breaking of bread. I'll give you one more in Acts. And this is less clear, but I do think that it is important. And again, notice the theological language on the first day of the week. In verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. 
This is almost certainly talking about communion. Um, They were gathered together in order to break bread. And the Apostle Paul preached to them long into the night to where a young man fell out of the window. Um, That's not necessarily regulative for our worship. Uh, um, Any other examples? So, and the prayers. We know from the Old Testament... And from the New Testament, and Christ rebuking those who were selling wares in the temple, right? What did he say? My father's house to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul directing Timothy on how to run the church, he says, I command you that all men should pray, lifting up holy hands, right? Pray for kings and all who are in authority. Prayer is commanded in God's local church and corporately together, Right? Any, any prayer examples I'm, that are prominent in your mind? The church devoting themselves to corporate prayer. I think prayer and song and song yes. Yes. I know. It's interesting. Yes. I agree. And you have, this isn't in a church service, but in Acts chapter 16 with Paul and the Philippian jailer, right? And Paul and Barnabas, that they were, they were singing psalms. And that's maybe why those things are put together, because singing psalms is pretty close to praying psalms and pretty close to teaching psalms as well. Um, any other thing with, with prayer being commanded corporately, not just individual, privately in our own homes? Ooh, well, uh, that, that certainly, yeah. So in 1 Corinthians 11, especially with head coverings being mentioned and things like that, that, yeah, prayer is mentioned as a corporate activity of the church. And again, the examples are too, too numerous for us to name, but the way I want us to think about it, when you're reading through your scriptures and you see these commands to pray, I want us to notice the corporate element that's implied in those things that we, I think, read past because we're in such an individualistic, pietistic culture that only focuses on my own personal things and doesn't focus on the corporate commands of Scripture. I'm going to bring up a couple of other things uh, in the short period of time. So first, I think that there's a lot. We have five times the Apostle Paul mentions to, to go to one another with a holy kiss. Okay? I think that implies something very significant about corporate worship. Right? It implies the people were together, and he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Okay? Does that not imply that they're together? Okay? I think so. I think so. Um, Maybe more than we're comfortable with. And I think that that's the idea. Okay? We're to be so devoted to one another in the local church that that there's to be a kiss. And I've brought this up so many times. A handshake, a kiss, a hug... In the local church, if you have something against your brother or sister, it's revealed in your heart, isn't it? How, how terrible is it? And I've said this before. Judas Iscariot going forward in the garden and, and he kisses Jesus. And what does Christ say to him? Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Right? 
It reveals hypocrisy in our heart. It's good to be around God's people. It's commanded to be around God's people because it sharpens us of necessity to have right relationship with one another. Um, We've already mentioned how being together, it, it guards people from apostasy, from falling away from the truth of the gospel. How many do we know that are outside the church that are on just the, the edge of falling away from the faith? Or on the edge of us at least saying in Galatians, I have doubts about you. I have doubts about you. Lastly, I, I would say the corporate worship, I think it's implied, is commanded and is better even to be preferred... Not, Better, I struggle with that, so don't take it too far. I don't know another word I could say. It's to be preferred in our hearts even because corporate worship characterizes heaven. Characterizes heaven. Heaven's just not going to be a place where I have my thousand acres in Montana and the new heavens and new earth where I can just do whatever I want. Even though that is attractive to me, to be honest with you. Um, Revelation talks about worship Corporate worship. Can we think of any examples of that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Think about that with me. When he sees a new heaven and new earth, he just doesn't see individual Christians doing their own thing. He sees a city coming to get out of heaven. These people are together forever. Perfect in holiness and grace. Can we think of any other examples? It could. I'm looking for heaven specifically, and that symbolizing the prayers of the saints on earth rising. But it's it's in the picture of corporate worship, isn't it? Miss Nancy, did you have something? Well, that's certainly true. It's not in heaven. Well, we know prior to us being in heaven finally and forever, that the angels are in heaven, worshiping corporately around the throne, right? We see that in Revelation chapter 5. The the angels, the saints, even those who have been martyred already, they're around God's throne worshiping. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 12. Notice this language. And Zion is such an important word because, again, New Test- Old Testament theology, Zion is the place where God's people gathered to corporately worship. Notice what is said. He says in verses 18 through 21, you haven't come to Mount Sinai to worship, okay, where you tremble in fear, but you have come to Mount Zion in verse 22. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And I believe what this is saying is that when you come together to worship, you're coming to Mount Zion. This is the place that God loves above all the dwellings of Jacob. This is the place of God's perfect corporate worship. The angels, the saints in heaven now are worshiping corporately. And so must we. So must we. Um, So, do we have any questions? Brother. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Well, brother, if you're going to go to 1 Peter 2, I agree with you. That's very strong. 1 Peter 2, 4 says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Right? We're not individual stones just lying in the field somewhere. We're to be gathered together as the temple of God. It's the purpose. Um, any other questions, thoughts? Brother. Amen. And, and there's something to the fact that we read New Testament that, that God died for individual people for sure, but He died for His church, right? Those given to Him corporately by the Father to Him from the foundation of the world, He died for those people to bring them to glory. Yeah. Mm. With the Lord. Yes. And then the, the end of that, therefore, or it says, um, and we will always be with the Lord. And there's like this very clear we yes. be with the Lord. And then it says, encourage one another with these words. Yes. Just the implications of even while you're on the earth, you're going to be together with the Lord in glory. So encourage one another now. And it's just so Amen. Amen. Yeah. So today we, we wanted to look at that horizontal element of what it means to be a church member. It's to gather, be devoted to corporate worship. Okay. But as Brother Joey's going to lead us in next week, the one another's of Scripture are, are even more prominent and more clear in the Scripture. And I, I fear that we don't devote ourselves to corporate worship in part because we don't want to have to strive for unity. We don't want to have to do one another's and the hard work of loving other people. We've not over-spiritualized, but that's what I'm, the, the phrase I'm tempting to use. We've over-personalized, individualized the gospel to where we don't even have to do the one another's of Scripture. Um, we don't have to gather together. We don't have to kiss one another. Um, and I'm not, don't take me overly literally. But we can talk about that if you want. Uh, during the afternoon service that Joey's going to be here for. And I'm going to be a... So. All right. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you in the name of your son who, who speaks of his name in the great congregation. God, we perform our vows before you uh, because we love you. And I, I pray that we would highly value corporate worship with your people and that we would not as... Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, because church is hard, it's always been hard, your Bible says it's hard, that the hardness of it would not eclipse the fact that we're commanded to do it by faith and love. Um, please, God, I pray that you would grow us in being devoted to corporate worship and by implication, being devoted to one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat>